Welcome to the Health Detective Podcast by FDN Thrive. We interview people who have dealt with the trickiest of health challenges, but eventually learn to get well and stay well naturally. Now it's time to hear from one of our detectives and learn how another health issue has been solved. We hope you enjoy the show. Hey there, folks. What is happening? And welcome back to another episode of the Health Detective Podcast by FDN Thrive. My name is Evan Transu, a.k.a. Detective Ev, and I will be your host for today's show. We are talking about something that we should not have waited 107 episodes to talk about. <laughs> it is too important, and it is a topic that confuses many people when they are first starting out into the world of functional medicine. And I find it's something that admittedly actually confuses many practitioners. So let's address it today and set the record straight once and for all. What is the difference between a gluten allergy, a gluten intolerance, a gluten sensitivity, and full-out celiac disease because, yes, believe it or not, there are differences between all of these things, and they're actually notable. Okay, so we will start with the simplest of them all, in my opinion, and that's gluten intolerance. So when we're talking about a gluten intolerance, you could have an intolerance to virtually any food, but gluten, dairy, corn, these are going to be things that you're going to be more likely to have intolerances to, and you'll notice that all of those things are pretty similar to ones that you hear a lot of allergies with, right? The reason that this is happening and what an intolerance actually is, is it just means that your body's having pro uh, trouble processing it, more or less. So when we're talking about celiac, when we're talking about allergy or sensitivity, we are implying that there is some immune response. This is the biggest difference that you need to understand. All three of those imply that there is an immune response happening. When we're talking about an intolerance, we are not talking about an immune response. We are just talking about your body not really liking it, maybe not having the ability to digest it. It sits heavily in your stomach. It gets things irritated. You have gas. You have bloating, which, not to be confusing here, but those can be caused by sensitivities, but they can also just be caused by a sheer intolerance. Your body can't process it, and that's an issue. I don't like to speak about things that I don't know for sure. And I feel like I should know this, but I can never find any definitive literature on it. So please, I would love to be educated if I need to be here. But some people say that we can't truly digest gluten. I wouldn't be surprised about that, but I've seen back and forth evidence of it. So I don't really know what to say about it at this time. Again, if you have evidence one way or the other that you feel really strongly about, you can send it my way. Just go to the comments section on our Podbean. So search for the Health Detective Podcast by FDN Thrive on Podbean, and you can leave us a comment there. We would love it if you did that. With that said, you can have an intolerance and actually have any of the other three. In fact, you could have a sensitivity, celiacs, and an intolerance all at the same time, okay? So that's an intolerance. Your body just can't process it. But there is, if it was an intolerance alone, there would be no immune response from that. So that's intolerance. Then we'll go to allergy. Well, allergy is an immune response, but it's a specific type of immune response. And the type of immune response that it is, is an IgE response. So that's immunoglobulin E. Now, IgE, when it's released, is associated with symptoms that 
even those of us that don't have allergies know all too well. All you have to do is think about the person in your life, perhaps it is you, that has seasonal allergies. And you'll see the watery eyes and the runny nose. And of course, no one typically, at least as far as I know, is going into anaphylaxis from this. But you do have an allergy set of symptoms there. Where IgE would be even more well-known, and it would show you kind of the dangerous side of this, is you might remember back in school, the kids that had to sit at the peanut table at lunch, like in elementary and possibly even middle school. That is a true allergy, my friends. That is an IgE response. IgE responses at their worst lead to full-out anaphylaxis. They lead to that throat closing. They can lead to shock. It is not a good situation. And anytime you hear about a response to a food being pretty much life-threatening, you can guarantee just about 99.99% of the time that you're talking to someone with a legitimate allergy. That's what's going to make that occur. So we have intolerance, which is this non, <laughs> this is not a clinical term, non-immunological response to the of the body where it just cannot process the food. Then we have an allergy, which is a specific type of immunological reaction from IgE, otherwise known as immunoglobulin E. Now we'll move to sensitivity. A sensitivity is a much more broad term, but it does imply a legitimate immune response. So this is not to be confused with an intolerance, which I find many people actually do confuse it with that, and that's kind of an issue, right? Sensitivities can have a wider range of symptoms. You could be getting headaches. You could be getting that bloating. You could be getting indigestion. You could be getting... Um, <sighs> I don't want to say just about anything because that's not entirely true, but if you look up a sensitivity, the symptoms are much wider and broader than an IgE allergy response. And here's why. Because remember, a sensitivity does not just imply one thing. There was something that was done, because you might have taken a food sensitivity test before, and I'll explain here why we use a specific type of food sensitivity test at FDN Thrive, because you'll see the flaws in normal food sensitivity testing just clearly here. Most food sensitivity testing, still to this day, somehow, despite the advancements in technology, is IgG response. So just like immunoglobulin E is IgE, immunoglobulin G is, you guessed it, IgG. Now, this is typically a much more milder response, sometimes not even really noticeable to the host in terms of the symptoms. And the problem with it, where it's really been tricky over the years, is it can be delayed. You might not feel symptoms of an IgG response, believe it or not, for up to three days after ingesting or consuming or whatever the thing that is causing that IgG response. And this is why we really believe in testing and not guessing. Now, of course, FDN Thrive, we believe in that just generally speaking. But especially in this case, it's particularly true. Because can you even imagine how, one, aware you'd have to be, but number two, how detailed you'd have to be in the logging of your food to figure out that a food is causing you an issue three days later. And let's say you did have the dedication to doing that and you wanted to be that like detail-oriented. How long would it figure or would you figure it would take to actually find that response, right? That would be a huge issue. So that's why we believe in testing and not guessing. But the problem is, again, sensitivity, we know that there's a hell of a lot more than IgG out there that can cause sensitivities. There's IgA, there's IgM, and about, well, one, two, three, a thousand other things that the body can do to create a food sensitivity. So 
Wouldn't it be great then, instead of trying to test for all of those random things and spending whatever that would be, probably $200,000 or something along those lines, wouldn't it be better if someone out there invented something where we could just figure out, hey, well, you know what? All of these immune responses are kind of coming from a relatively similar place. What if we could measure that place? And that is what the food sensitivity test that we use does. It has a patented technology. And so it measures volumetric changes in the white blood cell. Now, why would we measure that? Well, when we say these immune things are being released, it's typically coming and being released from the white blood cell. So what they have done is they basically say, okay, the white blood cell is, you know, this big before it's exposed to a potential antigen, and a potential antigen in this case, just to keep it simple, just means a food that you'd be sensitive to, okay? That's the potential antigen, the thing that is um, having a chance of ticking off the body, right? Potential and then antigen. So then they expose your blood or your white blood cell to the uh, food proteins, let's say it's the proteins in broccoli, because remember, you could be sensitive to a food that's otherwise healthy. So your body's now exposed to that, your blood, uh, white blood cell's now exposed to that. And over time, they've been able to see, oh, okay, your white blood cell changed XYZ amount in size, so you are this likely to be sensitive to it, and they end up having like this color-coded scale, more or less, that shows you how likely you are to be sensitive to the food. And they have a fantastic track record. They have a 93.6% replicability rate. And I always like to shout that out whenever we're talking about this test because it's important. The other food sensitivity tests on the market can't even come close. And it's not even because their technology is bad. It is just because the technology is straight up incomplete. It's only testing for one Two, maybe if you're really lucky, three things. I've seen some out there that do IgG, IgA, and IgM. Great, you're still missing like 997 more. It's not the most up-to-date technology. It is absolutely not the most cost-effective. Certain countries will only allow for IgG testing. Would I take that over nothing? That is... Um, kind of a case-by-case thing, in my personal opinion. There's plenty of people at FDN that might not agree with that, but I think that's a case-by-case thing. Um, I do think sometimes they can cause a little more harm than good when it's only a singular focus such as IgG. That's my personal opinion. And experience, right? It's not just an opinion based off nothing. It's an opinion based off experience. So that's just me. Okay. We have intolerance, no immune response. We have an allergy, IgE response. We have a sensitivity, which could be anything under the sun that's not um, an IgE response, but is still in the immune response category. And I'm going to pause for just a second, because just so you know, all three of those things we just said can apply to any food out there. This is not exclusive to gluten. We're talking about gluten because celiacs is in the mix, and gluten's so popular for being something that people are allergic to or intolerant to or sensitive to. But that is not exclusive to gluten. Now, what is exclusive to gluten is the next thing, which is celiac disease. Celiac disease is a legitimate autoimmune response that comes directly from exposure to gluten. So when you ingest gluten, what happens to these people that have celiac disease is their small intestine gets attacked. And this is terrible because the small intestine is where a lot of our nutrients get Uh, assimilated and processed. And so you can look this up online. I would just look up like small intestine cartoon or whatever. And what you're going to find is what looks like kind of a tube. And then these hair-like things that are on um, 
like the top. It, that's how it's going to look on the diagram, at least. Now, of course, what you're actually seeing is the inside of the small intestine. And so, yes, if you're looking at a cartoon that seems like a 2D image of a tube thing with these hair-like functions, remember that this would actually be 3D and it would be a cylinder because it would be enclosed, right? The hair-like things aren't outside. They're inside the small intestine. And so the nutrients and foods, well, at this point, it's, you know, I don't know if you'd call it food per se, but it's getting processed through all of this stuff and the nutrients get assimilated. Now, the issue is when one has celiac, that small intestine is getting attacked, remember. And over time, one of the hallmark signs of an undiagnosed celiac is something called a blunted brush border. And what that means is that those microvilli, those hair-like things that you see in those diagrams, they've been chopped down sometimes to almost nothing. And you got practically a smooth, slightly bumpy surface in there. And that's an issue because those hair-like things, those finger-like things, the microvilli, they are helping to get our nutrients. And this is why people with celiac disease so often end up getting misdiagnosed because they show up with symptoms that don't seem correlated with a gut issue. Why don't you look up how many poor people with celiac disease have terrible neurological symptoms? Now, Ev, why would that happen? Well, what happens, do you think, when someone isn't getting the proper nutrients? We need those things for our neurotransmitters and to feel good. Okay, not to mention you're sending the whole body up. It's lit up in inflammation. And we know many mental health conditions are nothing more than neuroinflammation at this point. Okay. So celiac shows up as so many other things sometimes, skin issues even, because it's coming from the gut. And what's like one of the first things you learn in functional medicine? All disease begins in the gut. Okay, that's a little controversial. I don't know if I believe in that entirely, but for the sake of today's conversation, it's simple and straightforward enough to have relevance where, yeah, you know, these there's a disease basically directly in these people's guts. It's terrible. And what's happening is they are showing symptoms in virtually every other way than the obvious, which or than the actual, I should say, which is the fact that they have celiac disease. So that gets attacked over time. Of course, for some people, this can lead to terrible stomach pains. Um, in very severe cases, it can lead to hospitalization. And I have a friend, she's celiac and uh, she does end up in the hospital sometimes if she's exposed to gluten. So very tough thing for these individuals. It's only 7% of people with celiac disease end up healing their gut after 18 months of being quote-unquote gluten-free. Now, why do I say quote-unquote? It is because, and I will directly say this, normally you know that we're very neutral about things because we need Western medicine sometimes, guys. I'm sorry, like that's just the truth. <laughs> um, and we need functional medicine as well. But Western medicine, statistically, because that's a study, fails miserably at properly recommending these people and guiding these people to the removal of gluten. It is everywhere, to be fair to these docs out there. Um, and I don't think they have the proper education to know that these people need to avoid this entirely. We know there's been studies showing that a, for lack of a better word, we'll call it a dose, if you will, of gluten, a tenth the size of your thumbnail, so a crumb, is enough to trigger an immune response in someone with celiac disease for up to three to six months. That's crazy. What's even crazier is how it was discovered to begin with. It was um, a woman who was religious, and she would go every three months and eat communion. I think that's what it's called. I apologize for anyone that out there that is that particular religion. I, I think I'm saying that right. You eat communion, I believe. Let me pause for a second. Okay, I'm back. Yes, we do eat communion wafers. All right. <laughs> so 
What happened to this lady is she was diagnosed with celiac and she was doing a little better, but she never got fully to where she wanted to be and they couldn't figure it out. Eventually they realized, hey, wait a second, that communion wafer that you're eating has gluten in it. And they realized that that little bit was triggering an immune response to the next time that she ate that wafer. Now, is it the same level of immune response the whole time? No, it is not. But it is an immune response. And so her body is going to be chronically disadvantaged, as if we need that in today's world, where we're already chronically disadvantaged just from freaking existing. (laughs) Now it's chronically disadvantaged due to that small, small exposure to gluten. So this is not fear-mongering. This is not to promote pessimism in people's minds. It's to promote diligence. Give it an honest shot and learn what the heck you're doing and stay true to the gluten-free thing. Don't cheat on it unless you're healthy. If you're super healthy and you're like, you know what, I'm willing to test this, I mean, you do your thing, okay? Because remember, you could still have an immune response and not be symptomatic, so it is kind of a risk. I'm a little more lenient nowadays, I'll be honest. I don't try it. I don't eat gluten directly, but I might be a little more lenient in eating something that was produced in a facility with wheat if I think the brand is otherwise reputable. I might take a chance on that every now and then. Seems to be working for me. Not recommending it to you. That's something you would need to discuss with your doctor or healthcare provider. But for me, it doesn't seem to be that big of a deal. But that was after four or five years of really giving this an honest go. And I still don't go out of my way to do it. It's more like by necessity if it would lead to just stupid levels and unnecessary levels of food restriction because I'm traveling or something. Just something to think about, okay? All right. So we covered allergy, or sorry, covered intolerance first. Intolerance is not an immune response. It's just an inability of the body to process what you're eating. Then we covered allergy, a specific type of immune response, IgE, immunoglobulin E. We covered sensitivities, which remember, sensitivities, allergies, and intolerances can apply to any food depending on the person. And the sensitivities most often historically have been tied to IgG, except there are hundreds, if not thousands of ways that the body can respond to a food protein that would um, cover under or be covered under the category of sensitivity. Then we have celiac disease, which is exclusive to people with um, gluten issues. And well, it's an inherent gluten issue, just to not be confusing there. And that means your body is actually attacking its small intestine when it consumes gluten. It is literally attacking it because it looks at it as something that bad. And so these people end up with myriads of symptoms normally, possibly neurological symptoms. Mental health conditions are very common in these individuals. And it's sad, but they usually go misdiagnosed for years. And our society and conventional medicine system statistically is failing these people with a whopping 7% of individuals having a healed gut lining 18 months after finding out that they have celiac. Now, why is that significant? Because the outer, um, the epithelial layer, cell layer of the small intestine, so the outer layer, is some of the most fast, uh, fastest regenerating cells in the entire body. They have about a three to five day turnover. Does that mean they're going to be perfect in three to five days? No, but it means that 18 months is more than enough time with someone on a proper protocol, like way more than enough time for someone to heal up. So these people are not being served correctly. They're not being told the true risks and they're not being told how to actually maintain this. I do not believe that 93% of people are just being lazy and don't care. I do believe there's some percentage in that 100% that absolutely feel that way. Yes, 93%, no way. And if you don't believe me on that, why don't you go talk to someone who has real celiac disease? 
They will tell you that they do everything to avoid that like the plague. They do not want that in their body. My friend, uh, she was in college, and she lived a different lifestyle than other people, man. Yeah, she went out and drank, but she was careful with that. She's not eating the food at the parties. Like She wasn't messing around with this thing, but she had to be careful. So these people live pretty diligent lifestyles, and I don't believe that 93% of them are just being lazy or negligent. I don't believe that they have the right information. So make sure too, please, if you know someone who has celiac, share this little excerpt with them or just look up the study that I'm referring to. If you just type in the information I gave you on Google, it'll come right up. I'm sorry. I'll actually put that in the show notes too. That's silly of me. I will make sure that's in there. And then you can see if my stats were right off the top of my head. <laughs> uh, they're pretty darn close, if nothing else. I'm pretty sure it's 7 or 8% over 18 months. But show that to them. Let them know that they have to take this seriously. And you're not saying this to scare them. You're saying it to literally empower them because they might feel so much better than they think is even possible. All right, so if you guys have any questions about this, you know already where you can leave a comment. Search for the Health Detective Podcast by FDN Thrive on Podbean. Leave us a comment, and we will make sure to get back to it. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and we will be back next week. Is it Thursday already? It is Thursday already. We'll be back next week with a conversation with Jen Maleka and Reed Davis, founder of FDN, about why blood tests are not always showing, or matching up at least, to what the person is experiencing. We'll see you then, and thanks so much for listening. Take care. Thanks for tuning in to the Health Detective Podcast. If you are ready to finally work with a real health detective on your health journey so that you can get well and stay well naturally, visit us at fdmthrive.com and click the Get Started Here button.